0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another uh, edition of Lunchtime Live with Start Art History at Masterpiece 2022. And today, we have the uh, singular pleasure and honor of joining uh, Lady Carnarvon uh, to uh, talk to us about collecting about the legacy of Highclere Castle and what it is that interests her. So, uh, Lady Carnarvon, first and foremost, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Pleasure. What... um, What excites you as a collector
1: well I think as you all might know that this is the centenary of the discovery of Tutankhamun Mm -hmm. and the fifth Earl of Carnarvon probably had one of the most outstanding collection of Egyptian antiquities in the world which he had built up from 1907 until his death in 1923 So that is perhaps where my husband, George, and I tend to focus Mm -hmm. and to which we tend to add as little as we can. It's a challenging area, given provenance, and to make sure you know where it's all come from. Of course. But, of course, his collection was sold to pay death duties in 1924, and it was sent off to New York in 1926. And America had the money (laughs) and... um, Howard Carter helped Lady Carnarvon pack off 1,400 of the most priceless and beautiful objects from Highclere to the Met. And what was left at Highclere was a few unexciting objects, apparently. We think they're pretty cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a, a, a second and they were edge, stuffed
1: yes. away in cupboards and found again. So in terms of collecting, finding and treasures, that's quite an interesting story because the treasures and the secrets of Highclere Castle kind of all come together in that mm. particular unique and discreet collection, if you like. But like any stately home, Highclere is a um, stately home which has... Which showcases the art or the desire or the passion for collecting over the centuries. Do you know how old clear is?
0: Um, I don't off the top of my head. Is it, is it 16th century?
1: Do, you, do anybody here know? Well, there's been a home there for 1200 years. So that's how old I it, am. <laughs> <how> I feel.
0: The collection. Hold the collection.
1: But so there aren't that many items. So the the, the antiquity of the of the uh, and of the home lies in its architecture, if you like, mm-hmm. and the bricks and the stones which frame the lives of the people who've lived there for at least 1,200 years. And then, as you move forward, much of what's contained in the castle probably dates from 1679, because Highclere was owned by the Bishops of Winchester the church for 800 years, and then my husband's family since 1679. So that was really when I feel like the first books and the first works of art masterpieces began to come into the castle and stay there. Many of William of Wickham, for example, who lived here as Bishop of Winchester, Mm an extraordinary man, he left many of his... um, Works of art to New College, Oxford, or Winchester College, or Winchester Cathedral. So that's where they are. So I've gone to have a look there. Amazing.
0: That's <laughs> so cool. I mean, so much of the, the legacy of British art history which obviously uh, it goes back you know, as far as you'd like, back to the Romans. But if we're gonna think in terms of, of fine art and painting, yeah. the 17th century, the mid 17th century is really when British art history enters into its own. And mm-hmm. so there's this interesting overlap between the history of Highclere and its collection mm-hmm. and, or its painting collection, you know, and, um, and, and the history of British art as well. And one of the things that I've always found so, u- so unique about um, uh, British art conservation and British art history compared to other European countries or the United States, where I'm from, is that in this country, there's this amazing tradition of the country house that has these remarkable capsule collections. And we were chatting earlier and you were being quite modest about the collection at, at, at Highclere. I mean, it is pretty remarkable, actually. Um, but for you, um, as, as the mistress of of, of of Highclere, you know, to, to, to command these, uh, uh, Van Dykes and, and, and these Rubens, you know, um, or excuse me, these um, Reynolds paintings, I mean, what, what do you hope to, you as an individual, is there anything you hope to add to that or do you see yourself more as a custodian of that collection?
1: Of the paintings. No, we do We do buy some paintings back, like any stately home. We've all fought to survive, and it's blooming mm. amazing we're still For here, reasons. frankly. So things have been sold over over the centuries, mm. and sometimes something comes up, and it depends whether we've got the funds or not. At the moment, the answer would be not to buy things <laughs> back. But um, that is one point. So we've just bought back... Um, um, a painting of Lady Evelyn Herbert, who's, who, with her father, went into the Timothee and by Auburn, which was a lovely thing to have back. It's quite frustrating. You're buying things back which were actually hanging there. So it is kind of irritating as well because it's this um, balance between capital and revenue. And, you know, you it's so worthwhile understanding that. And once you've lost the capital, it's very hard to get it back.
0: Quite.
1: So quite. Which is reflected in the collection of paintings as well as the home. So, so we tend to buy things connected with Highcliffe because In the end, I'm telling stories, hopefully truthful ones in this case, but I'm telling stories about the people, the lives, the laughter Mm -hmm. um, of those people who've lived at Highclere. And that's reflected in the art. So that's where I think my impetus comes from. My husband loves collecting. It's definitely in the blood, and so does my son. He was given some money um, from a godmother to buy something or other. He's gone out and bought a painting which he said was not what she'd given him the money for but actually <laughs> I'm really interested that that's what he actually bought. So he's got to go and apologize to her. I think she was giving him the money for a holiday or something but he's gone and bought a painting. <laughs> he spent it well. He spent so, yeah, it well if It's really a interesting actually how it kept some of the the desire to collect is both nurture and nature so we're back to Shakespeare
0: again. Absolutely. Well it's it's actually it's really a fascinating thing to have this conversation here at Masterpiece because obviously there's a massive cultural remit for the fair and, and there's an educational program and all these other things. But I mean, ultimately, all of these stalls are here to sell us things fundamentally. You're <laughs> Sure, it, yeah. it's commerce, you know, um, at, at the end of the day. And it's something that I find really interesting about British art history and about um, how we think about how we show and talk about uh, works of art uh, from from the past of this country, and, and again, highclares is, is so so closely bound up with that, particularly in the context of the legacy of ancient Egypt, of Britain and Egypt, and of course uh, Carnarvon and, and Carter's discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what what's it like for you living with the works? I know that a fair few of the works have gone, I believe, to the Met, if memory serves. Um,
1: no, well, I mean, uh, fourteen hundred items of the Fithell's collection. The, the bulk of it was sold to the Met in mm. 1924.
0: This is, of course, yeah.
1: So that was then, and they've stayed there, and mm. um, they formed the heart of the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of, of its Egyptology. They were bought by an amazing man called Edward Harkness, who's also very interesting in his own right and part of the Gilded Age. I've just come back from Newport, Rhode Island, so it mm-hmm. was interesting to be able to bring him into that particular talk as well because he was a very interesting man. He was out there in Egypt at the point of discovery of the tomb and Lord Carnarvon had met him but it was only after his death that he, he did that. So that was a huge bequest and a way of showcasing some of the most finely crafted often very small works mm. of art of ancient Egypt. You can tell the fifth isle of Carnarvon's eye whenever you go around the metropolitan you can get your eye in without looking at the labels
0: you know which one I, can, I completely agree with you on that. It actually is really interesting to me the um, the way that the uh, Carnarvon Collection is curated in the Met because uh, obviously the Met is a museum really unlike any here in London in that there's a connection to be made there between uh, old master and, and modern fine art and antiquities as well, which, which is something we don't do so much here in London. But... Um, One of the things that that the Met does, I think, spectacularly with the collection is allow the pieces to exist within their own history um, as well as uh, being a part of British history as well, which they very much are, um, but also at the same time using them as a reference point for so many jumping-off points in modern art as well, which is something that a lot of museums like, say, the Louvre or the British Museum um, aren't in a position to do not that they don't wish to, but that they're not in a position because that's not their remit to uh, uh, to do. So it's it's so cool to me thinking about um, thinking about that collection uh, in New York and and what remains of it in in Highclere as well. Um, because it it fires off in so many different directions because it gives us this, I mean, obviously there's the sort of celebrity status of of Tutankhamun, you know, and that's the the Egyptian that everyone can name. (laughs) You know, that's the one everyone knows. Um, King Tut, you know, but also understanding that that work, not just... In regards to the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, but but more the sort of rediscovery by the early moderns of of ancient Egyptian aesthetics, um, is so influential on the development of modern art and abstraction, in particular. There
1: is as one particular piece in the Met, which is a jasper fragment of Nefertiti's face. It's just the lower part and her lips and her face. It could be in MoMA, the Met, the British Museum. It could be in, in, a, in a modern contemporary art piece. It's one of my favorite in the world, including the Tomb of Tutankhamun. I just think it transcends time and space. So it is incredibly interesting. And again, that was Lord Carnarvon's eye. He was both excavating, finding, and buying. And in 1920, to um, 23, he'd actually bought two more pieces in, um, I think, Cairo, which he'd brought back to have mounted. And it's the tiny stories of how his care to have them mounted, it's a prancing horse, Hmm. and I've forgotten what the other piece was, but his care of having them mounted where he wanted to position them. So he turned what was the breakfast room in Highclere in 1909 to his antiquity room. He'd had a really bad car crash and he was in situ and he wanted to spend some time, you know, looking at the pieces, researching them. And he was able to ask all the great, because of who he was, all the great um, um, scholars of the time to Highclere, from Francis Griffiths to Lucre, to um, Spiegelberg, as well, obviously Howard Carter, um, Herbert Winlock, uh, Joe Lyndon Smith, all the different people you've read about, all stayed at Highclere so it's so interesting reading the visitors books I've just finished and copy edited thanks be to God (laughs) the Pharaoh the Earl and the Pharaoh which a book because no one's ever written his biography and I've so enjoyed it so I've become far better versed in the man himself who's most unexpected and I've really enjoyed writing it so I have got more to grips with the breadth of his collection.
0: That's fascinating, because there never been a biography written about the thorough. No. The, the
1: no. And I was going back to first resources. I can't tell you. I, I turned a room on the top floor of the castle into, which was called Orient, so I thought, that's my room, painted it yellows, <laughs> because that's the colour of Egypt, <laughs> of and, so. and actually I used some teals. Anyway, I had some fun doing that, and it is covered, the floor is covered So any burglar couldn't find anything in any way. With all my papers, I ended up going back to so many first sources Mm. and um, reading papers. And it was a really horrendous deadline and timeline, Mm. which I just about met. And then um, having sent it off, I just, actually, I'm afraid, laid down to all the papers and cried (laughs) because I was so tired. But but I did do it because I thought it was really important to do because this was the man, he had the concession in the Valley of the Kings he knew about, you know, the papers of Gaston Maspero and Theodore mm-hmm. Davis, Absolutely. and he knew what he was looking for, so very interesting. So that was that was one part of collecting in, of in Highclere, but if you take the Egyptian um, collection away, you'd still have quite a strong collection of paintings and other works. Oh, no, I agree. Well.
0: I mean, uh, 18th century Grand Manor portraits, um, early 19th century works, I mean, it, it is a a, a not great, bad. It's not bad. <laughs> no, no, you could do worse. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good collection to live with. I, I, it must be said. But I mean, but but the Egyptian thing is quite fascinating because, for a number of reasons, and I'd be curious as to know. Um, I'd be curious to know, like, why you think this might be the case, um, given you you, know, you sort of live with so much of this and live with this legacy. Um, the the works that were uncovered by Conarvan and Carter. Um, you know, the legacy of which is being displayed here at Masterpiece yeah. this year, um, has a universal appeal mm. that for whatever reason, as opposed to Mesopotamia or other areas of the world well, mag- Woolley was also know.
1: quite a frequent visitor at Heincliffe funnily enough. So and he was um, and he also worked out at Tel Almana. Mm-hmm. So but yes, it has far more appeal than that. But I think all the visitors in Roman times wanted to go and visit the Valley of the Kings and the Pyramids in Egypt. This is it. It's, it's held such a fascination.
0: I've always wondered why why that is. Actually, again, this is, is something I don't know that, that our, our listeners would be aware of. Is that Actually, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on, on, um, on Western artists, specifically British artists, uh, looking at ancient Egypt, or the remains of mm-hmm. ancient Egypt in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's something that I've found endlessly fascinating. In, in my research... Um, my conclusion was that part of the interest, particularly amongst like Victorians, uh, so slightly before uh, you know uh, uh, the fifth the fifth Earl and and, and, um, and Carter, um, but still they're they're working within that trajectory. Was this this idea of an eternal culture, rightly or wrongly, an, an eternal culture that had been sort of rather romantically weathered by the sands of time, but still existed and still had a kind of currency, something that in the work of Artists like the Scottish painter David Roberts um, speaks to this idea that there is a vibrancy still in the legacy of ancient Egypt that I find endlessly fascinating. And I remember, actually this is a personal note, but as a child studying ancient Egypt, learning about 1922 and, um, and, and Carter and, and Carnarvon, um, just thinking that it must have been such an amazing thing to... <laughs> This is so corny. Please forgive me, but um, that—that I remember thinking as a child of, imagine opening the tomb and breathing the air. No, thank you. you. (laughs) That was was, about.
1: I thought
0: it was great. This has been amazing. I said they're probably choking, you know, on this on this dead air. (laughs) It's true, Um, but 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 it is it is it is a fascinating idea to me that um, you know that. That, that your I family think it also take.
1: came after the tragedy of World War One. You know, yes. we'd had four years Quite of horrendous tragedy. We were in a, the world went into recession, very unstable, very brittle. Forming new parts of Europe. Um, There's been the flu of 1919, mm-hmm. and then you had this glimpse of all the glints of gold into a pharaonic world, which had lasted five thousand years. So it rather sounds familiar. Maybe we're due to find another tomb. But anyway, I, I hope we're moving on. But it is a very brittle and frightening world. And I think by looking back into something like this, it gives mm. you an anchor of the past. And again, a hope, because of the finely crafted works of art, because they've stood, withstood the sands of time, very much. that looking backwards helps us sometimes find our feet in order to look forwards. And it was that moment in 22 when everybody was interested. And, you know, Lord Carnarvon was writing in his diaries that from taxi drivers to people working on the farm to King George V and Queen Mary, mm-hmm. to whom he went for an hour to give it, have an audience with them in December 1922, to school children in America, South Africa, of Japan. Course. It was all flooded with wanting a little bit of this world of treasure and secrets. So it... It did resonate and he was almost as mystified as as I am trying to sometimes explain it. (laughs) But it was extraordinary excitement. It's the Ryder Haggard. It's the Indiana Jones. And He was kind of like an Indiana Jones. Yes, I think that's
0: right. His hat and his
1: headband and his love of fast cars and and his speeding tickets going twenty-five miles an hour through Newbury and he didn't stop when the policeman put his hand up. There was all those funny bits and he had quite a good sense of humour. But it was. um, a, he's been a fun man to get to know.
0: I love it, and it still and it resonates. It? You know, yeah. I, th- th- through world tours over the course of my lifetime of mm. of, of the treasures, um, and of course their their current location. You know, their 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 now permanent location in um, uh, of the treasures, some of the treasures in Egypt, and and the the, the global excitement in in not just its legacy as ancient stuff or its inspiration for subsequent Mm -hmm. artistic developments, but just as a moment, as this moment in time, which Mm -hmm. as you say, like the, the visual culture of ancient Egypt is unique in the ancient Mediterranean world Mm -hmm. in that it's so consistent with, with the, with a handful of exceptions, it's pretty samey, you know? And in fact, as I'm sure, you know, King Tutankhamun's rule, represents a return to normalcy from the previous dynasty that the previous period I should say the previous reign that that is is so Uh, 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 Upsetting to well,
1: I sort of think of Akhenaten, to whom you're referring, Mm -hmm. as sort of the Egyptian version of how I explained of Henry VIII, because he actually (laughs) wanted all (laughs) the tribute and all the money to come to him, you know, instead of the Pope or the or the priests in his time. So he moved his capital, directed everything to him, Mm -hmm. and then at the end of his reign, which we had again the same upsets in this country, the priests moved in. They had a young pharaoh, nine years old. And they said, excuse me, we're going to move back to Thebes and Luxor. Right. So it's the easiest way to explain it. And Henry VIII, again, was a powerful, innovative king who was basically pretty um, um, narcissistic and focused on himself and his own pleasures, <laughs> right. um, which he did to a remarkable degree. And so did Akhenaten. He had a beautiful wife, children, built Telamana, mm-hmm. and had quite a lot
0: of fun. I, and so that was so I gather... <laughs> so, that's such a cool way of thinking of it. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I've never heard that before. I it's because I'm not a
1: trained I, archaeologist. I, no, I love I it. No, no,
0: you're, it you're, you're, you're bang on. Uh, for those of you who are, are with us today who, who aren't as familiar with this as, as you might be, um, the, the, the predecessor to, um, to Tutankhamun Akhenaten was a pharaoh who spectacularly upended the entire cosmology of the ancient Egyptian world, um, effectively removing and indeed hoping to remove from future history the, the pantheon of Egyptian gods to replace with a single sun god, Aten, uh, to which he was essentially the tributary to to um, recreate the entirety of, of Egyptian society uh, around his own patron deity, which again, as, as soon as he dies, everyone Change their well, mind, he didn't uh, have know. as many
1: processions and fun as the old priests.
0: <laughs> no, it wasn't and as good. Part a time. of Egyptian
1: and culture and procession and religion is about the processions. It's the days off. It's the feast days. You know, and that's mm. still with us today. So I, I sort of um, really enjoy explaining it in those terms. You know, we have Christmas and Easter and days off, which have religious and Christian meaning if you wish to go along that route. I, for one, do. But apart from that, it's, it's also time off from the mm-hmm. from the everyday life. So that's um, what the other priests went back to more successfully. Mm-hmm. They had more holidays, frankly. This is
0: exactly what Akhenaten wanted to get away from, which is, is quite frustrating. Which, again, is actually part of the the brilliance of the Tutankhamun discovery is this unrivaled visual record of what happens when a society... Kind of corrects for itself yeah. <laughs> you know and and, and okay. goes back to, to to the way it was it, the way it was before which is is so fascinating
1: and the fifth earl of Carnarvon, with his collection was fascinated by the 18th dynasty and works of art he he recognized in that the highest point of egyptian mm. work of art works of art and that's really where his collection was focused so um he was always yeah. particularly interested in that Howard Carter did some of the wheeler-dealering, but he knew all the basic dealers in Egypt and Luxor himself as well. So he was always looking for the right price for what he was was finding and bringing back. Again, with proper licences at the time, he did things, thankfully, as properly as he was required to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the excavation. And then, of course, that then led to a whole new... Challenge in terms of who had what rights to the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun, but it obviously fell to the Cairo Museum, and in the papers, that's where he thought everything was going. Correct. But it was um, the the Daily Mail, in particular, spun stories in other directions. So it's it's again that nascent um, media
0: frenzy of. Of
1: miscommunication which I think we're there we recognize that today well, I mean
0: even I mean even to the point of of um, uh, any number of, of uh, media organizations in this country you know pumping up the idea of the the Tutankhamun curse you know this is this, going you to know this 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 bananas stuff that um, that in my understanding of the expedition, um, and again, I'd be very happy to, to comment otherwise if I believed it to be the case, um, is that everything was was handled uh, well within the boundaries of, of legality and morality according to the strictures of the time, as far as I'm aware.
1: He had a concession to excavate, mm. and um, actually he negotiated a very good concession to excavate, which in later date was more restrictive, and the concessions to excavate in somewhere like the Valley of the Kings was after after the period in which he had gained the concession, only handed to academic institutions. Of course. So he was one of the last he was gained the concession to excavate from Professor Maspero because Carnarvon had demonstrated by his care recording publication of his previous finds that he was a fit and able person so to do. So he'd set out his stool and on that basis gone forward and then he'd gained the concession in 1914 when, of course, the world went into war. But he went out in 1915. It's extraordinary when we know what was going on in France and, you know, yet small things did continue. It's, again, a fascinating insight. um, Carnarvon, which is, from a point of view of masterpieces, quite interesting, married an extraordinary woman called Almina. She was the illegitimate daughter of Alfred de Rothschild, one of the most spectacular collectors of 18th-century French art and furniture of his time and obviously spectacularly wealthy so Lord Carnarvon had followed an adage of Jane Austen that whilst you shouldn't marry for money you'd be unwise one wife's to marry without money so that's what he did <laughs> and the dowry was something like 50 million pounds in today's terms so that was his background and he was very fond of his father-in-law they got on very well and you know one of his wife's wedding presents to Carnarvon with some beautiful prints and engravings. So they collected in many different ways and they were both influenced by Alfred de Rothschild. Mm-hmm. So some of his collections is still at Clear today in terms of mice and china. So it was very much a world and a home in which they were... Lord Carnarvon was always looking for that which is perfect or there must be something more perfect or more highly crafted. And that's, what's which, that's something which drove the restlessness of his collecting. I mean, mm. it was just an extraordinary um, procession to watch. But um, Alfred was very influential in his world.
0: Of course, you know, it's, as well as you say about it's, it's a matter of, of family, of heritage, of sharing, yeah. of a spirit of generosity, which you've maintained to this day, if I may say, as an historian, your, your books are outstanding. Uh, I, 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 I've read them all. Um, what, so just as we, as we wrap things up, Lady Carnarvon, what, um, what, what do you want your readers to take away From the books that you write about the seasons at Highclere, about Christmas at Highclere, about about life in in this rather unusual world, where we're deliberately avoiding mentioning uh, any television shows. Oh, *Downton Abbey*. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: actually, there's a funny thing because do you remember? Have any of you seen *Downton Abbey*?
0: Some of you. I would imagine There was a
1: scene in *Downton Abbey* when they'd open the the house to the public. And um, the family pretended not to know any of the works of art on the wall. Do you remember that at all? They were completely ignorant. They had to be completely ignorant because I refused to let them pretend that the people on the walls were not people who didn't actually exist. So I said, you can't do that. You can't pretend they're Lord bloody Grantham because they're not. They're real people who really did do things. They really collected. They really existed. They really lived. So that was that. So as people come round the house, I hope they'll interpret through the works of art the lives of the people who are represented in those works of art in different ways. There's two works of art perhaps to mention. One is the great Van Dyke of King Charles I on horseback from 1633, which is in the dining room. It is the most extraordinary painting. And of course, you can, well, I can sit in there and the most amazing thing is having breakfast, scrambled egg, underneath the Van Dyke. It is, it is sort of surreal. How dare
0: you? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I hope
1: you do. But it is. It's those funny moments in time which are, are surreal. It is the most amazing painting. People do come and see it. It represents a moment in his life, the divine right of king, which was to be shattered some, whatever it was, 15 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, That painting was actually taken down in the time of Cromwell, and it was rolled up and it propped up a barn door. Did you know that?
0: I did not know that. And it was then
1: unfurled up and stuck up on the wall again. So that was a practical approach to making sure the painting continued to exist. (laughs) And there's another work of art, which is, well, there is perhaps one more to mention, which is The Desk of Napoleon Bonaparte, which is by Jacob Frère, and Mm -hmm. a chair by Jacob Frère, which sits in one of our rooms which is also an extraordinary piece of furniture to think that Napoleon Bonaparte sat at the desk. Um, It's got some scratch marks on the arms of the chair. My father always said it was when he was scratching it before Waterloo, which I'm sure he wasn't. (laughs) Um, And it's got underneath the arm 1802, so he was consul, not emperor. Mm -hmm. It's those tiny details that I really like. And I was the last third thing to mention, is that in the saloon of the central, the Great Hall in Downton Abbey, the saloon lucello, in Highclere, there's um, an extraordinary leather wall covering, which dates from 1661, Hmm. from Cordoba in Spain. It was probably brought back by the second Earl of Carnarvon or possibly the third, and it's in squares, so we can date it. There's a small piece in the Rijksmuseum, in Rijksmuseum Amsterdam. This is, covers an entire room, and there's another room on the top floor in the archive room, which is, again, covered in a gold version. But this is is a, an amazing work of art, but it's a wall covering. And, you know, it's 450-odd years old. Mm-hmm. My maths isn't very good, I'm an accountant. So... That is also something which you almost pass by, but it is something to wonder and admire. And today, obviously, Historic England would be absolutely furious if you dared cut up the top to make it fit, which obviously the Third Earl of Canaver did. Very much did, yeah. Yeah,
0: 100%. So it's
1: extraordinary how you, it's living, working, enjoying, sharing, encouraging other people to buy, to look. Look at the craftsmanship. Of some of the carved wooden furniture, which is which we're not no longer necessarily always appreciating, but mm. it is a fascinating house in which to live.
0: Uh, it's an intriguing and beautiful home. Mm. Um, it's a, I, I envy you that. Um, now, there's um, for those of you who are not able today or this week to to uh, make it uh, to to Highclere. Um, there is an outstanding uh, installation here at Masterpiece um, about the centenary of the 1922 discovery of Tutankhamun's uh, tomb. And um, if you don't mind me plugging you for just a, for just a moment, Lady Carnarvon has the most fascinating podcast, which I would strongly oh, recommend. Why well, I, I listen to it regularly, actually, um, uh, which I would strongly recommend um, uh, checking out. Of course, always a uh, seasonal opening uh, at the uh, at, at at the castle. Um, as well in order to see some of the uh, masterpieces on display there. Um, and as for us, you can always find us at uh, startarthistory.com um, or on Instagram as well, Start Art History. Uh, Lady Carnarvon, thank you so much for joining us that's today. is it. an absolute joy. Thank you so much. And we'll see you all again very soon. Take care. Thank you. <laughs> questions?
1: Normally there's questions or not. Yes. yes. About selling, you spoke about selling the orphan and bringing it back to the house. Hmm. Was it a forced
0: sale? Was it as a result of IHT taxes? Is,
1: is no, it would have been, it would just have been protected the. Protected from IHT now. Well, now it's slightly different because um, I don't know whether you know, but the Labour government, actually, it was a Labour government, brought in a really strong piece of legislation. In the 1980s, whereby that if the house and estate or the, the um, designated estate is deemed of national importance um, when, when an Earl, in our case, dies, an IHT inheritance tax, death taxes, are held over. So they remain above your head. <laughs> but in return, you open to the public. So many of the great houses, such as Blenheim or Burley, were under the same regime. So there's the deal. We are in partnership with HMRC and Historic England. So That, I think, is really good, which doesn't happen in other countries. It was a very good piece of legislation. We were deemed of national importance when the 6th Earl died in 87, and that's what my husband and his father achieved. So it's not just the house. We've got a medieval barn from 1438. There are follies, there's Bronze Age, Iron Age, and the 5th Earl is buried in the middle of an Iron Age fort which is, dates back to the same time as the civilization of Tutankhamun. So there, it's an extraordinary state as a record of how we've lived. So that's why we're still there. Before that, before 1987, every so often, um, Geordie's grandfather sold things to make ends meet. There he, he survived two world wars, and I'm in no way trying to criticise him, so please forgive that. The men who did that, he was born in 1898... And he saw more horrors than I hope we have to see today. But I'm not sure how much we learn or not. But he lived through that. Income tax in 1914 was 6%. In 1918, it was 60%. And our debt to America in that war increased tenfold. Sweet. So we started, there were a few things, mainly estates at that time, which the fifth earl had to sell, to keep paying supertax. After World War II, it was, again, a different regime with a socialist government coming to power and the NHS starting off. And, again, a time of higher taxes. So, in order, again, to survive, there was a few lucky breaks, but different paintings were sold. So, um, that happened in every house. Um, It is, for my my personal um, remit and with Historic England, is not ever to sell anything else again, and if things get tight, I, I'm not interested in doing that. There's other ways around it because the collection such as it is is obviously a little bit thinner than it was, although it's not half bad, <laughs> But it's actually the diversity of the collection from the different wall hangings to the embroideries to the paintings to the brown furniture to the silver. It's the whole history of a collecting in this country full of stately homes. So... That's my remit, is not to have to sell anything and to actually buy the odd thing back where we can. So that's how I feel about it. And I think, again, the capital of this country, you you shouldn't diminish. It's obviously being diminished at the moment, unbelievably. It's very hard to get back capital. We're all earning money. And trying to have enough to buy something we like, whether it's a holiday or a work of art, it's bloody difficult. So just don't put yourself in an even worse position. So it's quite interesting, collector and masterpieces. and But culture, what we've created, what matters to us, the values that it incorporates when you look at something is unbelievably important. And we need to preserve it. Thank you. Any questions sure. about Any, other, any further yeah. questions? That really good answer, I, I hope I can word this in a good way, but is there anything of the Rothschild's Jewish ancestry that has arrived, or Jewish heritage, that's remained within the collections um, through the... the, the, the his, um... I mean, I don't know. I, I never think of it as what was either Jewish or not, and I'm not sure they did either. I think it's about... Um, what they saw and they chose to collect. I, I don't see it's Jewish or Catholic or Christian or Egyptian. It's the works of art that reflects the culture of where we've come from, and it's all put together so that different things appeal to different people. We have got some very nice Meissen, China, which I think remains from Alfred de Rothschild's. Almina gave a couple of beautiful pieces of of furniture sofas back to Versailles which was quite annoying Or well, they're sitting there maybe they weren't from the start <laughs> with every so often you do find things well I do quite like them actually in the drawing they've been quite interesting today to say to, to people but anyway I have to say oh how lovely I hope you're grateful but anyway but but um so there's things like that you have moments of a of, of very human weakness that's just another one of them but I don't think in those terms at all, and I've done a lot of research into Alfred Rothschild for the latest book. I have found him fascinating, both the most extraordinary collector, the most kindest and most generous man um, to those in need in an extraordinary fashion. Every Christmas, he and his brothers used to make sure that every bus driver and every taxi driver in London had pheasant and rabbits and food as gifts from them. Just They must have given away thousands. He gave everybody who worked on his estate bowls of hot soup at lunchtime. I mean, extraordinary men in so many ways in what they shared as well as what they accumulated and yet they parted well, and he drove zebras for fun around Hyde Park. So, parting is also important. That's the music of life. He had his own orchestra, he conducted them with the Diamond Encrusted Battle. So, I love these sides, which is all of us, and they're all important.
0: Any final questions?
1: Hiya, um, so you touched on the importance of Howard Carter's discovery in 1922 of Tutankhamun. Lord State. Carnarvon and Howard Carter's discovery. No, quite. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, how much of an impact do you think the Egyptians had on modern art today as they were very into that art themselves? I think after the discovery in 1922, there was a huge consequential legacy which they gave us in terms of, in the times of the art deco movements, hmm. which is really interesting. My, I finished writing my book at that point in time but um, it is an incredibly important civilization. It lasted, perhaps in those times, it was more obviously in fashion and architecture and art. In today's world, when I'm starting to write, I think of the legacy of that civilization in that they existed for at least 5,000 words. they you know, I've taught myself quite a lot of Egyptian language through Alan Gardner's um, Middle High Egyptian grammar book. He was a frequent visitor at Heitler as well. But the legacy of the Egyptians actually is broader than that today. They survived 5,000 years. They looked after and nurtured the land in which they lived. Yes, there were wars, there was slavery, there was good and bad things. We're equally guilty. We are 2,000 years post-Christ and past their civilization, and we are destroying, not nurturing, our world. So I'm interested in thinking about their appreciation for the cycle of each day, the cycle of each season, their not- knowledge of the Nile and the flooding, and then our desire to control rather than work with and collaborate with the world. So I, I'm now interpreting their legacy in a slightly different way in terms of, of the environment and the beauty of the world, which certainly appealed to Lord Carnarvon. And the other small point to make is perhaps that Lord Carnarvon was much liked by the local Egyptians... He provided employment, he paid them all well, and he welcomed all the founding fathers of Egypt back to Haikli to find those points of collaboration. So whenever I'm looking at things, there are so many points of fragility, brittleness, and anger in this world. I'm trying to find the common threads whether through time or space or people, that those are the positive things that we must remember to try and bring us back together again. And I've been lucky. And one of my most exciting moments was when I opened the visitor's book to find Saad Zagul and Ali Yakin and all these founding fathers of Egypt had also stayed at Highclere, as had Howard Carter, Disraeli, Salisbury, Queen Caroline, the Prince of Wales. They were also there. So it's bringing people back together. So there's one level of his influence straight after. There's another level which I wish to bring back in terms of his, law, Carnarvon's welcoming of all aspects of Egypt into his life. And then how we need to look at the environment going forwards which they did far better than we're doing. And if we all disappear, who the hell is going to miss our bloody mobile phones?
0: But they might
1: miss the pyramids from outer space. Well, this is a very
0: good point. Actually, if I could dip in on that as well. Um, beyond the, the immediate um, influence on Art Deco and, and on, on um, architectural design styles, in the early 20th century, there's also the really fascinating... Um, filmic influence that, again, obviously, you know, Carter's, uh, Carter and Carnarvon's discovery comes about eight years before the invention of of, of sound, you know, of, of, of sound motion pictures. But it's interesting to note that when that technology is invented, one of the first international blockbuster films is, of course, Boris Karloff's The Mummy that actually explicitly references uh, the, um, the 1922 expedition um, but, but if I
1: could just interrupt in January 1923 in the first two weeks of January Lorcanarvan was in London seeing Pathé Cine trying to sell film rights he was also seeing another French company as well trying to get the best deal and he wanted to write a book so I finished The Earl and the Pharaoh saying I've written the book that he was never able to write, and maybe there'll be a film from it
0: yet. <laughs> you won. So
1: that was <laughs> that's that. very
0: important. That's very important. So, yeah. This is this is for the record. Actually, this is a very important point to make. <laughs> yes, I quite agree. But also, but even in more contemporary terms, it's it's great for us to talk about the early 20th century, and and very apt. But um, there's also the incredible influence that maybe whether or not a "quote unquote" authentic ancient Egyptian visual culture, who knows? But what our perception of it is has a tremendous influence in the architecture and style and design of the 1980s Louvre. as well, through the, well, quite, <laughs> yeah. this is it. I mean, whether it be am <laughs> pay at the Louvre or or, or, or the postmodernism of, the, of the, the aptly named Memphis group, you know, that, that there's, there's, there's this thing that I find endlessly fascinating about the legacy of ancient Egyptian visual culture, which is really brought to the world, you know, through your family, is that, um, that it, it, it keeps popping up Again and again in these variety of different contexts, whether it be through uh, the again the pre-1922 uh, vogue, you know the post-Napoleon, post-1798 vogue, through the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly, or um, through the music hall traditions of the later nineteenth century, or the work of David Roberts, you know uh, the Scottish artist who I know quite well. Um, or Art Deco, or the postmodernism of the Memphis group, that it keeps popping up and up again, or even in the music videos of contemporary recording artists like MIA that make use of, of ancient Egyptian mythology in, in, their, in their visual culture, that there 's something that 's like, for whatever reason and i couldn 't i 'm not smart enough to know why, but I just know that it exists, um, that there is something about that culture that captivates us.
1: Secrets and Treasures. I think we're all on a path to find secrets and treasures. I mean, that's why I watch Indiana Jones. <laughs> and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in some ways, you know, looking up and had a wonderful hat with a lucky white band. And, you know, he liked driving fast. And he was, you know, the, Jeffrey de Havilland, who's one of the earliest av- aviation pioneers, took off from Clear in 1910. So he was so interested in all so cool. the earliest um, technologies and... And fascinated by the past, a restless, inquisitive man. And I think that's what we all should be. There's a very good poem by George Herbert, because um, our family name is Herbert, but the title is Carnarvon. And I think I hope he's a distant relative, because I'm rather fond of him. And it's called The Pulley and it starts when God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by. Let us said he pour in him all we can, strength, beauty, everything made away. But the poem then comes to a resolution, saying, but alone of all his blessings, rest in the bottom lay, so that if goodness doesn't throw us to God's breast, then weariness may. And I think in some ways that, that perpetual motion was definitely in Lord Carnarvon. He, did, he was a Christian. He was buried in that message to him when he went to church. But he was a man who hopefully in the end, I think, weariness threw him to his rest.
0: Mm. Lady Carnarvon, thank you so much. It's Again, the, it, it's an absolute joy to hang out with you. And I'm sure you guys have all enjoyed um, as well. And thank you all so much, everyone. Cheers.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.